the FT. Hello, I'm Fiona Simon, one of the editors on the World News Desk at the FT. Syria has passed a law lifting the state of emergency that's been in place in the country for nearly 50 years. The concession came after security forces cracked down on thousands of pro-democracy protesters in the country's third city, Homs, and represents part of a series of measures taken by the Assad regime to regain control of the country. On the line is Abigail Fielding-Smith, who's been covering the unrest for the FT. Abigail, what's the latest on the ground in Syria? Well, there was an attempt to start a, a more permanent gathering in a main square in the city of Homs. That's now been dispersed. But the mood that I'm getting from speaking to people and, and from reading testimonies from people uh, across the country is that the atmosphere is still very tense and people are still full of anger and we can expect to see more demonstrations. How widespread have the protests been in the last week? They certainly seem to have been more widespread than previously, whereas at the beginning it was concentrated in Dera, mostly tribal uh, agricultural area. We've now seen more strong showings in big cities, in Damascus, in Aleppo, in Homs, also in Banias. So there is a sense it's obviously hard to get verifiable numbers and you know 100% accurate information about the size of each demonstration in each place because there's restrictions on media reporting. But it, the overall picture does seem to be that it, it's getting larger and it's getting larger in different places across the country. Up till now, how has the regime responded? It's responded with a mixture of some quite limited conciliatory gestures, such as offering to free some of the people imprisoned since protests began and more recently lifting emergency laws. A mixture of those and obviously very brutal crackdown in which, according to human rights groups, at least 200 people have been killed. And what analysts say is that, you know, while you're continuing the one strategy, the other strategy is not likely to have much effect. The emergency law lifting is something that people have been asking for. And if this had come earlier on in the demonstrations or before the demonstrations had began, it, it might have been seen as a big step forward. But now in the current environment, people are so angry, their expectations have been raised. And it seems that for some people, at least, this is this is not going to be enough. It's too little, too late. There does seem to be a move by some elements in the regime, at least, to try to contain the protests rather than put them down brutally. I think that there are possibly sort of different councils going on within the regime at the moment on how to deal with this. Certainly last Friday, in contrast to previous Fridays, there seems to have been an attempt to not use sort of live ammunition in dealing with protests which would indicate that there's some people that, that start to realise that the violent response can have a, a counterproductive effect. But then, since then, as protests have grown, we've also seen sort of more deaths reported, which activists say due to security services opening fire on, on demonstrations. The regime has begun to blame the unrest on conspirators and, and hardline Islamists. Um, do you see this as, a, as a, a sign that a harder line may be about to be adopted? Certainly that, that gives people cause for concern when, when they start using that kind of language. I guess this Friday will be quite an interesting test of, of both sides to see what their strategy is going to be. Um, it seems that the protest movement has gone from trying to get people out demonstrating to actually trying to, to get people to set up permanent encampments in the way they did in Egypt. So if they succeed in getting people to kind of flood and occupy squares, it'd be interesting to see how the regime plans to try and stop that happening or how they would respond to that if it did happen. So I think 
think both sides are probably kind of working on their strategies in the coming days. Do we know who exactly is the opposition and how organised they really are? It does seem to be a genuinely grassroots phenomenon. Earlier there was groups outside the country called on Facebook for a day of rage sort of the month before last and no one responded. But this seems to have come about sort of organically with within the country itself and, and there are now sort of activists linking each other up and posting videos on YouTube and um, sort of hooking each other up to, to networks and, and communicating with each other and, and getting their message out to the world and trying to coordinate with each other. But the organised opposition, the um, Damascus Declaration, which is the sort of coalition of opposition parties and activists, have been relatively inactive on all this. They did post a statement on their website recently sort of urging people to demonstrate that this is really seen as... as something that's being driven by youth and activists and ordinary people on the streets, not by organised opposition parties. Is there an Islamist element to it? It's hard to tell. Certainly mosques have been a focal point of of some of the demonstrations and the Sunni Islamist community has been marginalised under Alawite rule of the Assads. So it's possible that there is an Islamist element to it, but um, it does seem to be something that's primarily driven at this stage by activists and and ordinary people rather than ethnic or religious or political groupings. And in fact, the protesters are very keen to kind of push the the message that, you know, they're not sectarian and that they're united. And there's a big fear in Syria of sectarianism erupting as a result of this. They've got a border with Lebanon and they've got a border with Iraq, both of whom have been torn apart by sectarian conflicts. And Syria, like them, has a, a number of different ethnicities and religions. So everyone's quite aware of the sort of spectre of sectarianism. It's certainly a very sort of unpredictable and and volatile time. That was Abigail Fielding-Smith in Beirut. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Bryant, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.